Welcome to 50% with Marcel Combs. On this podcast, we will travel a journey of leadership with each guest as she analyzes the ingredients that lead women to their current role. Marcel's goal is for you to walk away with tools to support your very own journey, no matter where your current destination is today. today. I'm good. Our listeners have the delight of listening to Dr. Kathy Crockett today, who's a good friend oh of both gosh. of ours. Yes, what a wonderful gal. This is going to be fun. You you should yeah. describe for the audience your picture of Kathy. Oh, wow. You know, she's very energetic. The minute you're around her, you just feel uplifted and she's very tall, could be a model. She is... She'll appreciate that. (laughs) Well, she's a runner. I know that about her. So, uh, and she believes in taking care of yourself for sure. But she has uh, just a wealth of knowledge. She is a woman of faith, a great educator. And I, you know, I've learned so much from her Uh just in the privilege of uh, being in that master's program for leadership. Uh She is a leader. You know, I think some of my favorite memories about Kathy, and we we mention it in her interview, is that you and I went to China mm-hmm. as part of our Masters in Leadership class Amazing. with Dr. Crockett uh-huh. or with Kathy, alias Kathy, <laughs> and we were able to speak to a lot of Chinese women that were entrepreneurs. Now, of course, through an interpreter for most of them, mm-hmm. but she led this group there and had, um, yes. I don't know, I guess it was probably eight or ten of us mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and had meetings that we led in, yeah. in all different yeah. situations. Yeah, it was, oh, just another world. And to see her enthusiasm for that culture, her true love to just want to help these mm-hmm. women that, that really aren't in a world of the privilege mm-hmm. we have in America. Very evident. Uh, but I learned so much. And just being able to, to have that privilege to go there with her, I wouldn't trade it for anything, Marcel. Yeah, you know, the other thing she does so well is she's a big long-time or lifetime Mm -hmm. leader. And to be that lifetime leader, she reads lots and lots Uh of books. Uh And so she talks to people along those lines. She challenges me (laughs) because I feel, Uh um, one is she's a huge encourager, which comes through in this. Very much. But also she is a great person to just challenge herself Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to just read something every day something you know not not your basic novel but you know (laughs) yeah learn something new learn Um, something new every mm -hmm. day and and do that I think also what sticks out too with her that again you you hear this theme with these women is some ways they chose that first professional job mm-hmm. once they had a family based on it working with their family. Yes. Uh-huh. And not not all people can do that, mm-hmm. but you do have some choices. And I think there's some wisdom in that. Yes, absolutely. As we get into these podcasts mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. choosing certain work or certain jobs that also give them flexibility or freedom, if you will, to try to get that balance 
um, mm-hmm. or focus on their family also. Oh, yeah. Marcel, you talked about that a lot, balance. And uh, I think it just reminds us again that women in the workplace are trying to keep their families a priority. And so they land a lot of times where mm-hmm. that's the first thing that attracts them in some way. But uh, Kathy, she's amazing. This is going to be great. I think so too. Let's, let's listen to her and give the time to her. In this episode, she is joined by Kathy Crockett. Kathy Crockett, PhD, is CEO of Crockett & Co. The organization provides professional development and customized corporate training globally, specializing in leadership and executive coaching. Dr. Crockett created this company after teaching business and leadership at Lovett Christian University for 22 years. She graduated from Texas A&M University and then completed graduate work at Texas Tech University. She's had formal training from the Center of Creative Leadership related to women in leadership and executive coaching. She also completed a year-long leadership coaching program with Dr. John Townsend and was a facilitator for the Franklin Covey Seminar entitled Great Leaders, Great Teams, Great Results. Kathy also completed an executive certificate program in women in leadership through Cornell University in 2019. Kathy has served on various boards and is currently on the board for the Pure Hope Foundation and Park Ridge. She is the author of the Courageous Women of Faith series of books that have been published in 2014, 2016, and 2020. She is married to Steve and they have two daughters. Welcome, Kathy, to 50% with Marcel Combs. We are so excited to have you here with us today. We're just going to ask you some fun questions and, and just see about your journey. Well, thanks for asking. This is so fun. Um, okay, Kathy, you know, one thing I thought we might just start with, I know that you, uh, you are an Aggie. You went to Texas A&M. And I then am, you, <laughs> yes. And then you got your graduate degree, your PhD from Texas Tech. Why don't you just give the audience a viewpoint of, of just all those miles you walked on this journey uh, as a woman in leadership? Well, you know, it was interesting when I was in high school, I actually was born with maroon diapers because my parents were actually in graduate school at Texas A&M. So I was born with maroon diapers. I had, I was an Aggie from before birth. And so when it came time for me to go to college, I actually was really excited to go. I could not wait to finally get to be an Aggie and go down there. Lots of family tradition going to A&M. And it was a remarkable experience. I had great mentors there. I worked for a professor there all four years he gave me a job and just learned so much from him. And of course my professors and just the experience overall was just phenomenal. It was a great experience. I learned a lot. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done because the joke was they were trying to weed out the people who weren't strong enough. And in some courses that was the case, you know, I remember thinking this is so hard, but I really, (laughs) you know, it was good though. It was good to help me learn to be tenacious and hang in there and be challenged and push through. And so it was great. And then when grad school came along, I actually, had already planned to go out of state to a different university. Yet, Mm. you know, I'm a person of faith. And it was kind of an interesting thing for me early in my life to just feel like I was just being drawn back to Lubbock. Um, My family Mm -hmm. was there. 
you know, when I left to go to A&M, I was never coming back to Lubbock. And then <laughs> it just kind of worked out a little different. So I did end up at Tech to finish up my master's and PhD work. But that was also another challenge, you know, to figure out what does that look like? I kind of knew early on my mom was a professor and she was a phenomenal mom. And in my mm. mind, I always watched her do that and thinking, you know, I want to be a professor someday because it's a great mom job. I always kind of yeah. had that in the back of my mind because I, I knew I wanted to be a mom too. I wanted a family. And so it's interesting that I never really, even in eighth grade, I think they found something in eighth grade I wrote and it said, oh yeah, I'm going to get a PhD. Because at the time I thought everybody did that. My dad had one too. So I just <laughs> thought that was kind of normal. So, you know, I, I kind of just was on that path early on, but I do remember thinking even at the pivot points to make those decisions, that that really was on my mind that, you know, I enjoyed learning. Yeah. I enjoyed school. I enjoyed the university environment. And then also knowing that it would allow me to be a mom was just, you know, also part of the puzzle. So that was kind of my early years for sure. How old were you, Kathy, when you uh, finished your dissertation? You know, I was very blessed. And since I kind of knew that was my (laughs) path, I went straight through. I kind of would make the joke if I left, I might never come back. So I actually did four four years of undergraduate and went right into four years of graduate. So let me do the math on that real quick. I think I was 22 when I finished my undergrad. And then, so Mm -hmm. I was about 25, 26 when I finished my um, PhD. Oh, wow. That's crazy. And then your first job was at LCU, Lubbock Christian University. Is that correct? It was, you know, along the way, I met a really cute boy and we got married (laughs) and his job was in Lubbock. And so I knew that I probably obviously would like to live. I shouldn't say obviously, because I do know a lot of couples that they might do long distance or they might have to flex for a while with their careers. But at the time I was blessed with an opportunity to teach in the business program at Lubbock Christian University. So pretty much I graduated with my PhD in May and I started teaching in August at LCU the same year, 1997. And you taught in the business school for... How many years? And then yeah, twenty-two years. Wow, and you're still a a relatively young woman. (laughs) I love that, Marcel. Yes, I am. And really, (laughs) people kind of question me. They said, "Well, you know, you're not even fifty yet. So why are you calling this a retirement? Why didn't you just resign?" And that Uh signals that you're going to be doing other things. Yet, for me, it kind of was an into a career and 22 years is a long time to invest yourself in something. And, you know, I wasn't You're leaving right. mad and I wasn't leaving, you know, it was really a shock even to me in some ways that it just seemed like this was a time to make a shift. It wasn't necessarily even something I had on my radar for years and years and years. And this was when it was going to happen. It just, the way it unfolded, it just became the right time. And it was just a good thing. And I was grateful how it just unfolded and worked out. And I'd already done quite a bit of consulting and executive coaching and working in industry quite a bit, even before, you know, professors do that quite often. They have consulting and do different things and Uh presentations and speaking engagement. And, um, and I love my students. I love teaching yet. It Uh did become, it just came, it was time for a shift. So the reason I called it a retirement is I did feel like I was retiring from that particular hat I was wearing, if you will. I was retiring Uh from being a professor. I was retiring from full-time higher ed work, you know, yet at the same time, I knew I would want to do other things. I wasn't going to sit at home and probably do nothing. And there was a lot I could continue, but I was excited and still am of the space it's creating for new things coming. What was it like being a very young professor, young PhD, probably compared 
to other professors there. I, I mean, typically, you see people go back a little bit later to get their PhD. Maybe they need a little rest time. Uh, so what was that like of being a female in a small university and teaching in the business school? You know, that's it's a funny question because it just makes me smile remembering what that was like. So I can remember <laughs> my first semester teaching pretty much I would ask students questions. First day of class, you're trying to get to know your students. And I would, I play these fun games with M&Ms and different colors of questions and things. And at the end of that game, after I've asked them all these questions, I said, does anybody have a question? And probably for a good two years without fail, someone in every single class looked at me very skeptically and asked, how old are you? It's like, they just were, couldn't, bra- they were like, you don't look old enough to be a legit professor or Dr. Crockett. You know, that doesn't, that does that. They weren't connecting the dots. It was kind of funny. And I, I was kind of sad, Marcella. It seemed like later in my career, I didn't get that question as much. And I don't know what happened, but they didn't seem to ask me that question lately. But, um, but that was an interesting thing. Another funny thing that happened is that one of my classes I was teaching had a glass window in the back of the classroom and kind of had a workroom or like an area where students might could study back behind it. It was a, kind of an unusual, usually classrooms, you know, you can't see in from the outside very easily. But this particular classroom had that glass window. And I'm not even joking, another professor in the department, an older professor came in the back of that on the other side of that glass and sat there and watched my entire first lecture. It's like they wanted to double check that I was legit. And I saw them, I could see them the whole time and I knew exactly why they were there. But you know, I just decided I'm not gonna be offended. I feel very confident in my training and it's gonna be great. And so I just did my thing and then they never came back again. And I don't know, it was just kind of a funny experience because you oh, know, gosh. that was pretty unusual, but I, but it was okay. Cause I knew I was younger and, yeah. and I've had plenty of other, I had lots of teaching experience in graduate school too. And so I wasn't, it wasn't a foreign concept to me that your you know, professor that you work for might be in the classroom with you from time to time. But yeah. it was just interesting at my first job that that happened on my first day teaching. It was, it was, I'll never forget that. It was kind of funny. Um, so if you were talking to other, you know, very ambitious young women that are going to do their, their bachelors, not, not many of us, I would say, had both parents who have their PhD and then they just assume they're going to get that PhD uh, every day of their life. But if, if you were talking to a young woman now who aspired to do that, what, what would you say to her? It really depends on so many facets. There are so many different puzzle pieces on the table that are really unique to different people. For example, if you were going to go to graduate school, you know, well, where do you want to go? Do you want to go out of state, in state? Do you, where, do you know that you're going to want to do research and have a PhD and a dissertation? Or are you looking for more practitioner-based programs where it's really more like an MBA program for executives versus an MBA program that's going to put you into a PhD program for management or something else. So there's different tracks and it's so unique. Education is so fascinating to me right now because there's so many options. There's one group of people that say you got to get some industry experience first, then go back. That's where the value is. There's other people that say go straight through because if you know that you're going to want to be a faculty member by the time you get tenure and you want to have kids, that gets tricky too. So you know, I watched my mom do it. She did not go straight through, you know, her path was not a linear one for sure. And it worked out great for her. Mine was perhaps you might call a little more linear, although there were definitely some crazy roller coaster rides within it, but I was able to go straight through it and it worked out great for me. So 
I think I would encourage, don't put yourself in a box necessarily, or think there's only one path in that, you know, if you don't do it straight through, you'll never come back. You know, I said that, but maybe I didn't mean it. If it was, you know, if I was supposed to do it, I would have swung back around. So I think you want to have confidence in your own journey and not be nervous that maybe it may not look like everyone else's and be open to the other parts of life that you still want to have space to, to have, like maybe a family, or maybe you want to travel. Maybe you want to take a gap year. Maybe you do want to work for a while and then maybe your company might even pay for it. I mean, that could be awesome. So I'm even one of my students, she started out as nursing and she basically almost became an RN before she realized she didn't like it. She was in the hospital and didn't like it. So now she has an accounting degree and she was about to wow. do a master's in accounting, but she's just got accepted to law school. And oh, wow. so, I mean, again, everyone's so unique. I would just have confidence in who you are and explore some things. And again, don't feel pressure that it has to look a certain way. You know, Kathy, you said that you knew you wanted to be a professor. Tell us why you chose the path or the specialty you chose. Yeah, undergrad was an interesting time because I knew I liked business. I always seemed to, even when I was a little kid, my mom said I was so entrepreneurial. It's like I would sell things to people. I would like make potholders <laughs> and take them to school and try to sell them to my friends. It's just <laughs> something she said I kind of did for fun, you know. And so when I was going to A&M, I was thinking business, something in business. Well, then I also had an opportunity, a huge blessing, because I, was, I actually grew up and was involved in 4-H. And I got a very significant scholarship that almost covered all of my tuition for college if I majored in something related to agriculture. And so the professor I ended up working for, so I did ag economics to start with, because I felt like that was a good hybrid of both. Well, the unique thing about that was the professor I worked for was the director of undergraduate programs, and he actually was helping create a brand new degree where you actually got your degree from the College of Business and the College of Agriculture. So it was almost like you mm -hmm. had two majors, got the full throttle business degree and also got the agriculture courses, which fulfilled my commitment to my scholarship. And my mom also would always make a comment every once in a while. She said that she knew that she initially wanted to go into her, her specialty is food technology, like um, registered dietitian, food, super smart. I mean, she's brilliant. But she said, I knew people always had to eat. So I'd always have a job. If I had a job, something around food, <laughs> I would have a job. And so it's not that I necessarily thought that that's why I majored in business or agriculture, but still a lot of agriculture is around food. And so it kind of jokingly thought, well, that'll be great. Well, then my graduate work was interesting because it wasn't what I thought I would do. It's more of an interdisciplinary type degree, but I was able to really focus in more on consumer behavior type things. And this, I was just intrigued with behavior, human behavior. You know, a lot of my doctoral work <laughs> focused on innovation. Like you take an innovative new product. And in my case, it was, how do you get people to order a beef appetizer at lunch? <laughs> or because they wanted I did not they, know that, that Kathy. Isn't that funny? Because they realized that was a gap in the market. And so, and really that was my research. It was a psychological model of a gap between intention and behavior. It just happened to be applied to marketing of a product. And years later, what I find fascinating is all that research I did on attitudes and beliefs and intention. And what does that gap look like? You know, you want to do something, but what is the gap that keeps you from doing it? Well, that ties in directly to leadership. And I've used that same knowledge and that same experience related to leadership and helping employees and helping team members and helping myself. You know, this gap is so intriguing to me between intention and behavior. There's that really interesting space. What goes on psychologically in that space? What, what are the obstacles? What keeps people from doing what they intend to do? Following up on that, Kathy, 
So what does keep people from doing what they would like to do or they think to do in that gap between intention and behavior? You know, that's a really big question. And (laughs) I've looked at it from a lot of different areas and, and I'm not necessarily collecting data. There are a lot of really smart people who, you know, are doing formal research and all of that. But in my reflections of all that I read and just experiences and good friends like you who share wonderful stories about things. I think a lot of it has to do with our energy levels. I think we're fatigued in general as a nation and, you know, we're fatigued in different ways. You know, is it your physical body and your health? Is it your mental energy and capacity? You know, is it your emotional self? You know, how do you show up in situations? Emotional intelligence plays out there. You know, I also think about spiritually, we're all spiritual beings. How's your spirit feeling? Are you feeling like you're getting to make a difference in this world? You know, is what you're about to buy going to help you with your value base that you might have? And I've added another one that I've kind of really been chewing on the last year or so. And it's an area of social, you know, what is your social network allowing you to do? Or what are the norms? What is normal for the people who you hang around with? What is their behavior like? And how does that influence your behavior? So I kind of focus on those five different areas and think through how that influences from an energy perspective, but also there's all kinds of external things, right? And so it's unique for everyone. I think Um, there's some commonalities, but it's really hard to make generalities. I hate to put people in a box. I really Uh love just working one-on-one with people and trying to find out what's going on for them because season of life is a huge factor. You know, what is their family situation? Where's their geography? You know, now COVID turned so many things upside down, you know, that now comes reality into the mix. So it's, again, it's a fun thing to think about. So tell me that kind of leads us in, you have a current new exciting project. Uh, You formed your own company. You're now become the CEO uh, instead of the professor. But I, I always look at you and think you're always teaching in a beautiful manner. Uh, but tell us about your new project and, and how you decided to just launch out and do this after your quote unquote retirement at not even 50. Well, it, it has been really exciting. And, um, and what's really interesting, too, is the timing of it, right? I've had several friends and colleagues come beside me and say, hey, nothing like starting something new in the middle of COVID-19, right? This has probably been <laughs> interesting for you. And, and it has, but, but to answer your main question, I mentioned earlier that I'd already been doing quite a bit of executive coaching and consulting, even as a professor. I oh love industry. I love working with practitioners. We kind of call a degree. Sometimes some degrees are more theory-based and go on for graduate work, PhD work, that kind of thing, and writing papers and research and that kind of thing. And then we have practitioner-focused type degrees where it's really more for industry and how to in the marketplace and, and both can serve each other. Well, they both can flex either way. But for me, I always felt more of a draw to the practitioner base. Even in my classes, they would leave with tools every day. It wasn't theories mm. are important, but if you can't implement them and execute them and see how they tie into your everyday life, it's hard sometimes to value them. And so for me, even as a teacher, I always wanted to have a practical tool that they could implement right then, whether in their personal life or in their school or in their jobs that they had. And so because I did this, I ended up working with a lot of people in industry in our community and beyond of just being curious about it. In fact, part of my um, season as a professor was to build a master's in leadership program. And part of that curriculum, the way that we developed it is I was privileged to interview CEOs of huge companies, one of them 
was actually an executive in a company and he, he used to work for Jack Welch at GE. I mean, that interview was just wow. awesome. And they gave me ideas. I said, if you could create 12 courses for someone to get a leadership degree, what would you create and why? And how would that create value for your company? Why would that make them a valuable employee in your company? And then I went and found the same number of people who got their PhDs in leadership at academic, different academic institutions and asked them, what would you create from an academic perspective? And then we like mesh the two. So pretty much my whole career, I have very much been about industry and how can we help these concepts make a difference in the business world and for leaders and practitioners. And so it made a lot of sense that when I sensed that it was time perhaps to retire from the full-time professor hat, I naturally was already doing some of the work and I kept doing the work. I still had some coaching clients. I had some clients I was doing consulting with and I continued that work and planned to just expand that. And now COVID hit, of course. And so some of the of things we kind of had rolled out the red carpet and couldn't wait to launch, we just rolled it back up. <laughs> I just have so much trust that it's going to work. I have, I have so much belief that our economy is going to come back, that we have really a lot of people who are hungry and they get in there, they're entrepreneurial People like you, Marcel, that I watched you build your company. And, you know, we have such great people out there that I can't wait to see all the innovation that's coming. And I can't wait to serve those leaders who are going to go do those things. I think that's great, Kathy. And I believe you're going to be very successful at this whole endeavor. Let's switch gears just a little bit. You, you have two daughters, one of which is graduated from college. I can't remember. Is she working on her master's yet? Well, she or, actually um, completed her undergrad and her master's in four years at Abilene Christian. And <laughs> so she now she is did. looking. She's, it was um, a great integrated program. We were so grateful. And she did work really hard. She, had, she was motivated because like me in school, she also met a cute boy. And she yes. wanted to be done with school when he got done. And they're getting married in July. And so she had a little extra motivation to get out of school a little quicker, but I'm um, really proud of her. So she's done with college and she's looking for a job here in this area. Her husband's going to farm. So she's looking for a job here in town. And then my younger daughter it will be a junior in the fall at Apple okay. Christian. So you had finished all your degrees, but then you did all this and you were working full time. And the question that always comes to mind is how did you do it? And two, what advice would you give to women in this, in this job role? Be confident in your own path. I mentioned that earlier. Don't look around and think that you're a bad mom because you're working or you may not be, you know, doing all you can because you're staying home or you are somewhere in between. Once I had my children, LCU offered me the opportunity to work from home and teach online. And so I didn't really go mm -hmm. to campus for several years because I was home with my kids and I savored that time. I loved it. It was so good for me because not only did I get to enjoy being with my kids at home, but I had also my professional stuff online that kind of met that need in me or that desire I also had. So for me, that was a great fit. I went on play dates and I went to Bible studies with all these other moms. My kids played with their friends. And then I also loved the professional environment where I was working with students. I was building classes, building content, doing all this innovative work in the online profession, which it was probably 1999, 2000, the first online courses I taught. So way back in the dark ages. Mm. I love that piece too. I really love- When the technology was not what uh, it is today, right? It was the wild, wild west. Oh my goodness. It That's was right. crazy. But yes. But so for me, that was great for me, but that didn't look like my friend who was 
you know, building her company and working 80 hours a week and had someone who was helping her with her kids. And that was different than another dear friend of mine who loved being home with her kids and didn't work at all, you know, outside the home. And she had plenty of work inside the home. So I had dear friends in all those different lanes. And I didn't, but Mm. I did see sadly how some people would judge all the way around. It's like the stay at home moms felt judged by the working moms. The working moms felt judged by the stay at home moms. (laughs) And that made me kind of sad. I was like, why are we doing this to each other? Let's, so I would encourage you, whatever your path is, go for it. And don't look around wondering and don't, don't assume they're judging you. They're probably, I think we all were just trying to keep our heads above water, figuring out how to be a good mom. Because that ain't no joke and that ain't for sissies. And so <laughs> no kidding. So I think that would be my advice is just be true to yourself. Don't feel pressure or expectations from others. I also know my husband was in a remarkable support for me. He encouraged me to go after things. He was not threatened by me taking students to China. Marcel and I, you know, we went on that trip, Marcel. My kids <laughs> right. were in junior high. I think my kids were in elementary junior high age when, you know, we went to China for 10 days. He didn't blink an eye at that. He goes, go for it. So having his support and his, you know, encouragement to do those things. So, so whether it's a spouse or a mentor or friends, you want to get some people around you that believe in you and get you and encourage you to do things. Not because I also saw some people trying to make themselves smaller or not go after Mm -hmm. what they really wanted because they kind of felt like that people might judge them or think they were a bad mom or weren't being, what they were supposed to be doing, whatever that means. And I saw people really shrink down in that because I, I believe perhaps they didn't have enough people speaking life into them to go mm-hmm. for it. So I just want to, I think that would be my big encouragement. Allow people the space mm-hmm. to do it the way they want to. So if you have a friend, you're working all the time, but you have a good friend who's a stay-at-home mom, you don't have to compete and compare. Let everybody do their thing. Let's complete each other. Let's encourage each other. Mm-hmm. Let's, you know, put the fuel in the fire to help them go be who they want to be instead of saying, Oh, well, you know, I'm better than you, (laughs) or I'm not enough because look at all that they're doing. Well, maybe you're not supposed to do all that in this season of your life. Maybe you're in your own lane. And that's a big thing too. I had to really learn. Do you know, Kathy, you were talking about China, this, this program, this master's in leadership program that you first researched and developed, uh, just to explain to the audience, we had um, seven people initially in my company then that were executive positions that all went through this program. And then as part of that program, we went and met with uh, entrepreneurs in China. And so uh, that was a wonderful experience and really China was not necessarily on my list, um, nor was speaking through an interpreter, which is a whole nother situation, but such a rewarding experience to just understand that universally uh, people struggle with with whatever role they're taking. And so we, we met with a lot of female business owners during that trip and that was such a rewarding thing, something you put together and, and truly made a huge difference and an impact. I think about uh, the people we met with from time to time and just wonder how they're doing today. What a great role you had just in my business at that point and just helping us go to the next level. We all did uh, all but one 
all finished and it was uh, a great, we can all say we did it. Uh, and I, I loved the program. You know, Kathy, um, when we talk about your journey, uh, I know you're a big reader. So tell me what your favorite book is of all time. And then just tell me what, tell the audience what you're um, reading or listening to. I do a lot of audible books just because they just fit my lifestyle right now. But tell me what those books are. Well, you know, Marcel, you know me, how much I love to read. Asking you to pick right. my favorite book is like my favorite child. So, you know, I have multiple <laughs> things I'm going to have to share here. I can't just pick one. But one of the authors that I really appreciate is Henry Cloud. Mm-hmm. He wrote two, he's written lots of books, but two of my favorites of his is Necessary Endings and oh, another book book. called um, Boundaries for Leaders. And mm-hmm. the reason I like Necessary Endings is it was the book that finally helped me appreciate that there is a difference between quitting and making a necessary ending. You know, as leaders, oftentimes we will just gut something out. We just are not going to quit. Maybe we're on a high school basketball team and have a coach screaming in our ear, you're not going to quit, don't quit. And so we've kind of been programmed that no matter how bad or hard it gets, that's just how life has to be. You're going to have to gut it out, even if you're running yourself into the ground. And even if maybe it's not even healthy anymore, it's not even something you should be doing. You just are determined not to quit. And so that book helped me see the difference. You know, sometimes Mm -hmm. it's very wise and savvy and healthy and strategic to make a necessary Mm -hmm. ending. And I appreciated that book for that. The other one, Boundaries for Leaders, got more into how as leaders, sometimes we cause our people to act crazy. We were, you know, we're like, why are our people acting crazy? Well, it's because of the way you're leading. Have you thought about it? And that book really (laughs) highlighted like your brain chemistry, the neurochemicals in your brain, which was similar to another book called Conversational Intelligence by Judith Glacier. Um, That book also talks a lot about neurochemistry and how that affects how we communicate. Fascinating. It was, it was a really, in fact, I nerded out and went ahead and did a 70 hour continuing edge course with her because it was so fascinating to me. Another book that I think is interesting is called, how will you measure your life? It's about strategy and life. And I just appreciated the thoughts in that one. And those have all been ones I've read in the past. The one I'm reading now, Brene Brown, her research is, is very good. And it is really shifting the corporate world to get more comfortable with the personal side of the spreadsheet, you know, for so long, it was all about numbers and results. And now corporate's recognizing that it's much more, you've got to be emotionally intelligent. You've got to be thoughtful and mindful about how your actions are hurting strategy and all those things. And so her work is, is very, very good. Stephen Covey, obviously a fan of his. Recently, I've read some new ones. Atomic Habits has been a book I read about four or five months ago. And I get, and I get his weekly newsletter in email and it's short and crisp and awesome. You want to get that mm-hmm. if you don't have it. It's really, really good. And another interesting um, book and podcast I've been listening to is called The Next Right Thing by Emily P. Freeman. She probably writes in a way that's uh, accessible to anyone. But for right now, especially after COVID, her whole focus of a lot of her books, especially that one, is decision fatigue and how hard it is mm-hmm. to make decisions sometimes. And I think just as a planet everybody probably has decision fatigue because you've been having to make all these decisions in the middle of uncertainty of, of COVID. And for the first time, well, maybe not first time, but I can't think of another time that every single person on the planet has been affected at the same time. You know, it's just such what? a fascinating time to be thinking about these things, but decision fatigue 
I think is a big deal right now. You know, it's interesting that you would say decision fatigue in times of COVID. That's what um, I have a son. And And when you say picking your favorite child, I was thinking you only have two. I have five. <laughs> oh, no. You can never do that, Kathy. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, one of them says we need T-shirts that say cause covid because COVID, we do X, Y, Z. Um, so if we want to think about decision fatigue and COVID, what's the biggest thing you've learned during this period or, or done um, or started new? I know you kind of started a business right before this. So t- tell me about that. You know, it's been an interesting time because I think like anyone, you kind of remember what shifted the first, what, what was the big thing that shifted first? And the big thing that shifted first for me was not going to visit my daughter at study abroad in Oxford. Instead, Mm. she flew home. And so then we were in 14 quarantine and this is before they even called it a pandemic. This was before they even, we even thought that everyone would be on lockdown. You know, I think Italy was, but we didn't realize it. And so so to me, at first, I was like, okay, well, how cool that I don't have to go to work every day and I can be in quarantine with Maddie for 14 days. It never dawned on me. And I, I don't know if it really dawned on anyone how what this was going to become very quickly. And so even then, I think it took a while for me to fully appreciate how significant this was really going to be. And not only affecting my company, but since I was coaching and I have, I had quite a few clients who owned companies and owned businesses you know, someone I was in touch with was leading a big school district and education, all the ramifications around education. Another one was leading a hospital. Mm-hmm. So all the ramifications around a hospital, another one was considered non-essential. So how am I going to pay my employees if we're not open for business? You know, another mm-hmm. one's a technology guru and they were having to figure out how to figure out technology for companies and schools. And so all of that was coming to bear at the same time. And I remember just thinking, this is a lot to carry. Usually some people might be struggling or not struggling might be the wrong word. Some might just have some unique challenges, but others might be flying. But for the first time, all of my clients at the exact same time were carrying this heavy stuff along with my kids, along with myself, along with my husband. And so it just was fascinating to me just to sit and kind of just almost be outside myself watching it and then try to just give myself space to process it. And I think one of the things I learned is I needed to create even more margin and space because I might have a laundry list of things I need to get done. But if my emotional state and my back to this fatigue idea, my idol, not to say that we're cars, but, and I'm not some car guru, but I do know that when your car is in park or neutral, there's an idol. And when you put it in drive, that RPM might go up, right? But just, you're just sitting there. You're just idling. But I think as a planet, all of our idol has gone up. So it's taking Mm -hmm. more energy just to be still. It's taking more energy just to try to keep the status quo, much less growth, much less innovation, much less creativity. And I just thought, wow, how interesting that it's going to take even more energy than ever before to get things done because we're already starting Mm -hmm. at a higher idol. And what am I doing to replenish that energy? What am I doing to try to find some resources more more than ever before to try to not only survive this, but to move forward and to help other people move forward, you know? And so just learning to give myself some grace and some Uh space and some margin. I also learned that 
I've got to get more comfortable with maybe kicking a few things further down the road, obviously, you know, things that were in the, the Q1 and yeah. Q1 was humming pretty good. Q2, not so much. Now we're in, you know, the end of Q3 and going into Q4, quarter four of the year. And I'm finding myself not only moving some things later, but recognizing that's not even something I'm going to keep doing. So yeah. it's been a good pruning season for a lot of people too, because we're all going to have to be leaner. We're all going to have to operate more focused. And so there's even grieving in that, right? You've got to let yourself uh -huh. grieve the stuff that either died through this whole thing or things that are having to get shifted. Like my daughter, I mentioned my daughter getting married. So many friends did not get to have funerals and weddings and the grief of that, right. but also right. just the grief of what could have been. We've got to process uh -huh. that or else we're going to get tripped up by that later. So that's something else I've learned is really, am I being intentional Leaders sometimes don't grieve. I was in a John Townsend program one year, and that's one of the first things he told us. And I thought he was crazy. I'm like, what are you talking about? We don't grieve. I mean, if someone dies, we grieve. What do you mean? And he had to really teach me. We, we should grieve something every day. Maybe it's a conversation mm -hmm. that didn't go well. Maybe it's, and it doesn't have to be, it could be a 30 second grief. But you want, if you're disappointed by something, you've got to grieve it or else it's going to clog up your short-term processing <laughs> and you can't move forward as effectively. You're going to end up carrying tons of baggage with you. And that was pretty profound to me because, you know, Marcel, we're in Texas and we just kind of, we get things done. We get her done. You know, we don't <laughs> got time for tears. Yes. Cry it up. We got stuff to yeah. do, you know? And so that's something else I think through all of this is I've tried to acknowledge my disappointment. And I've tried to help the leaders I work with acknowledge their disappointment. Also, it could be their full out exhaustion because it's kind of like I had two in general, like maybe three groups. One, they're working more than they've ever worked before and they can barely take a breath. Others, their business is non-essential and they're at home. They can't do what they normally do. And they're having to figure out how to fill their days and what to do when we can open. And then somewhere, sometimes people are somewhere in between. So it was just, it's no joke. It's still, it's no joke. There's still, we're still in the middle of it in many ways. And so mm -hmm. it's, I think I'm still learning. I'm on a huge learning curve. And another big aha for me was I've tried to listen to tons of podcasts, reading lots of books. What can I learn? What can I learn? I have this time now that I can read a lot more. And one of the people, Whitney Johnson's her name. She does a really interesting work where she talks about the S curve. And if you're in business, you know, economics, you're on an S curve, you know, a product barely is known and then it gets more known, then it gets traction and, you know, the demand curve skyrockets. And so she talks about that with people and their personal lives and the different roles they play. And so you're kind of on this curve, you're going up a learning curve, then you become an expert. And then it's time to jump to the next learning curve. And if you don't make that jump, you're going to start going down the other side of that curve and start declining. And then if you recognize mm -hmm. it too late, you've got a bigger jump to make to get to your next learning curve. But the thing about learning curves is they're really messy and I don't like messy. I don't like feeling like I don't know what I'm doing. I don't like feeling like I don't know the next decision to make. I don't, uncertainty doesn't scare me. Risk doesn't necessarily scare me, but the fact that you're having to make a decision and you make one and the very next day it's irrelevant and you have to start all over again is something I think fairly new. This is something everybody's facing. You know, like, uh -huh. okay, well, I got my PPP loan. Well, just kidding. We just changed the rules again. Oh, well, just kidding. It changed again. <laughs> and, you know, that's just one of a thousand things that are happening, right? And so just figuring all that out, but also recognizing we are all as a planet on a new learning curve. And it's going to be uh -huh. messy for quite a while. 
And that can be frustrating and aggravating and just take all your energy and drive you nuts. But we have to face that reality that in many of our cases in multiple roles, think of all the people who worked professionally outside the home had to also figure out how to be an elementary school teacher with like a week's notice. They're not professionally trained to be a teacher and all of a sudden they're expected to teach their kids at home. You know, that's a learning curve. It's going to be messy. It's not going to flow easily. That is learning curves are not always easy. And if, especially Mm -hmm. if we're all on them, life's going to be messy for a while. And we've got to just Mm -hmm. recognize the reality of that and that it's going to be a process. And that goes back to my comment about me having to give myself grace, having to give my, help my clients give their themselves and their employees grace. How are we going to get up? You know, how are we going to keep climbing this learning curve together? And we're going to have to get comfortable with messy for a while. So that's something else I learned, I think, through all of this. Um, Speaking of books, uh, I'm so impressed with your tenacity with this. And you have written a series of books, uh, Courageous Women of Faith and Courageous Men of Faith. Uh, And you give all the proceeds to... um, favorite charity of yours or a favorite nonprofit. Tell us a little bit about these books and and what made you decide to do them? You know, it's interesting. I had a season in my life where, and I don't know why, but I primarily worked with men. And one day my husband picked up my phone and because he's my technology support. I just get so frustrated with technology. So he's very patient. He helps me with it all. He's really smart and all that stuff. And he's scrolling through my text messages. He says, where's all your girlfriends? You got all these guys. And he wasn't jealous. It's just, I was on several boards. A lot of my colleagues at work were men. I was a tomboy growing up. So maybe I was just kind of hanging out. I mean, I just, it wasn't intentional, but it got me to thinking, huh, that's so interesting. And so I just, you know, I'm a person of faith. So I kind of just started praying about it going, what's up with that? And then shortly after that, I think I shortly after that, I met, some of my dearest friends now, Marcel, I don't think I'd met you yet. And then Catherine Lee, I had not met and some other dear friends. And so I just started meeting the most remarkable people and they all had these amazing stories. And many of them said, yeah, someday I'll probably need to write a book. Someday I'll probably need to write a book. So I went to my colleagues at LCU, the English professors, you know, who are professionally trained in this. Right. And I said, Hey, I have this idea for a cool book. I like to read book Mm -hmm. at night. It wouldn't be cool to have a book of stories that take you about an hour, maybe two hours to read each. But it's just a series of stories and it's of people who are of faith. I would encourage my faith that would, you know, that kind of thing. And so they all thought it was a great idea, but they didn't have time. And then I can remember being very overwhelmed thinking, oh my goodness, I think I'm going to have to do this. And it was not my plan. I was thinking I might could write a leadership article or how about a textbook? Mm -hmm. This was nothing I'd ever (laughs) done before. Yeah. How about a textbook? Yeah, uh, there's not had... many people that say, oh, let me just think about this. Maybe I'll write a regular book or, oh, I'll just write a textbook. Yeah, I'd but... much rather do textbook where somewhere I feel like I'm <laughs> equipped and have some kind of competence. Oh. You know, I didn't have any idea what I was doing. But, you know, I feel like, again, since I'm a person of faith, I felt like God really blessed me and helped me and brought great people who knew, did know what they were doing because I was very passionate and compelled for my friends' stories to be told and for these remarkable people that I was meeting for my friends to know them and to share these people with 
others that I knew. Probably earlier in 2014 in May, my friend Catherine, who we do lots of, um, we were doing lots of corporate type work together. I actually was bringing her into Lubbock and she got off the plane and she said, Kathy, I just had the most remarkable experience. I just got off the phone with my husband. Yeah, I just, I have to tell you about this. And it was just this vision she had of this place. And this was probably, I think we said this was in 2014. So think back six years ago, nobody was really talking about human trafficking in America. I assumed it was in overseas in Thailand or other countries. I didn't realize it was in Lubbock, Texas, but she, she somehow knew, and she knew there was going to be a place someday that we were going to make. And I just listened to her and I just had the privilege of walking alongside her while this has all come about. She has a wonderful book called Interrupted by Catherine Lee. If you're interested mm-hmm. in that story, it, I mean, I can't wait for you to read it. It's so inspiring, regardless of what walk of life you're in. It's so inspiring. I've had leaders tell me that it gave them the spark they needed to start doing new innovative things at their company. So regardless of you know what industry you're in, this book, you've got to get it. And again, so I'm on the executive board. I'm a full believer in it. And I love the proceeds can go help that ministry and that work because it's profound. And so you can go to purehopefoundation.com to find out more. But um, but yes, all the proceeds go there. And we just finished our third book, The Courageous Men of Faith. It's actually all three are on Amazon if you want to check them out. But um, just remarkable people who are brave to share their stories openly. And it's just been a really special experience to be part of that. That's great. So when you look at all those stories that you've written, who, who is the most um, unique or interesting? I know that's an unfair question, Kathy, but I thought I would ask it anyway. Yeah, it's kind of like my kids. Each one of these authors, just I've become so close to them. I, I would say just in overall in the work we've done, one of the people I thought was extra brave was a guy named Mike Quayle because his wife's story was in the first book. And then we also wanted him to do a men's book, but it was taken a while. And he agreed to be a guest author in our second Courageous Woman of Faith book. So he called me, he goes, why am I in the chick book? I thought you said you were going to do a men's book. <laughs> and his story followed up his wife's story. And those two stories together are so special. And then another thing we did in the men's book is in the second book, there's a story of a volleyball player who had a brain bleed during a volleyball match and her mom gave the perspective of the story. And then in the men's book is the perspective of her boyfriend and her dad and having those three different perspectives of that same story. Oh, it's just really special. And this, her boyfriend at the time, he was 22 ish and he shares so openly what it was like. He had been dating her for many years and had already planned on marrying her and asking her parents to marry him. But just the reality of the things he faced as a 22 year old, I'm just, I'm like, wow. And then of course there's other, I haven't, there's another author. She was 20 or 21 when something really awful happened. And just to see her resilience, her name's Amber. Um, But each story is just so special. I mean, they're all unique. They all have different ones. One other one that was kind of a highlight for me was I have a mentor. She's, she's in her eighties and somehow I got to know her again, another remarkable person that just Mm -hmm. came into my life. And she's become a huge spiritual mentor to me, but she was talking about her good friend, Betty, Betty, this Betty, that. And one day she told me, she said, Hey, Kathy, you know, I forgot to tell you, Betty wrote some books. And since you like to read, you might want to read some of her stuff. And I was like, well, sure. She goes, Oh, well, she uses her formal name when she writes. And I don't know if you've ever heard of her, but her name's Elizabeth Elliot. And I was like, 
like Jim Elliott's wife, like the missionary whose husband died. And then she took her 18 month old daughter back and shared, lived with the people who killed her husband, that Elizabeth Elliott. She goes, Oh yeah, I guess you do know her. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> and so they were lifelong friends and prayer warriors for wow. each other. And she tells a story of their friendship. And that was just so special. But each author is just, I mean, one of the board members at Pure Hope, she writes her story. One of the bravest people I've ever met. Her name's Tanya. I mean, there's so many remarkable stories. And so, again, obviously, I love them and I believe in them. So you got to get the books, but they're so good. That's great. Well, just to end up here, um, you know, for our young women, and I know uh, I asked you a little bit about what you would tell them, but are there any ending thoughts or ending advice uh, that you would give other women uh, out there just in life advice, I guess, Kathy? I would say the best thing advice I got one time was just to really be mindful of the seasons of your life. And what do you want? You know, I had a mentor of mine one time. I was make, trying to make a really big decision. And, and like many of the women, I'm sure who listen to this podcast, you're pulled in lots of directions. You're going to have way more opportunities than you ever have time to take advantage of all of them. And so sometimes you can easily get overloaded with too many commitments, but also just, again, just trying to pick, well, which path do I take? I like all of them. They all look great. You know, those are some of the hardest decisions we make. It's not between the good and the bad. It's between two phenomenal options. And man, how do you pick? Because you cannot do them both. And I remember this person who I really appreciated because she would benefit a lot if I chose one direction or another. But she didn't try to lead me one way or the other. She just said, Kathy, what do you want? And sometimes that is the hardest decision to answer because we don't always know what we want. And so I would just encourage you to spend some time thinking about that. And there's lots of different models to do that, lots of different ways to do that. But what are your core values? What matters to you? If, if money, you know, you hear that famous question, if money wasn't an option, if time wasn't an option, what would you do? Yeah, make sure with that question, you keep in mind your season of life. I think sometimes in my journey, I would look at other people and opportunities that would come to me and I would see other people doing these opportunities and I would like expect to be able to do them. And then I was a little puzzled why they weren't coming as easily to me, maybe as someone else. And I think a lot of it has to do with our season of life. And like, for example, I pulled way back on my speaking and consulting when my girls were in high school, because I wanted to lean in big time to that. And so I guess it's not really that things are balanced because sometimes I intentionally imbalance my schedule. I intentionally focus more on one area than another. Uh So it's not really about balance. I would encourage everyone to think about fit. What is the best fit for me right now in this season? And often when I was able to remember the season part, I thought, you know what? I could do this when the girls graduate, or I could do this in quarter one of 2021. I don't have to do this right now in the third quarter of 2020. When I realized that I was in control of some of that, that flexibility, it was like, why am I making myself work so hard when I don't have some options here? And I would say, make sure you're in abundance mentality. Stay in abundance mentality, because when you're in scarcity mentality, you're going to think that's not enough. And if I don't take advantage of these opportunities now, they're going to dry up. And I just Mm -hmm. want you to know that if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are already someone that 
you're not going to, that's not going to happen to you. You are clearly, if you're interested in personal development and listening to this podcast, there's going to always be plenty of opportunities. So just trust that trust in abundance, not scarcity, live in possibility, not what if there's not enough. And, oh, well, if I don't do this, be in, in fear and judgment of yourself that, oh no, well, if I don't do this, they're never going to ask again. Or if I don't do this, I'm never going to have a meaningful thing to work on again. You know, get in abundance of curiosity and possibility and say, you know what, now it's just not a good fit, but you know what? I trust in the future. If this is supposed to happen, it's going to happen. And if not something else, even better is going to be coming. But if you, if you don't have that knowledge and that discipline to be very, very careful about not overcommitting yourself, man, it can get so stressful and you're going to get burned out and you're going to get resentful. So season of season of life. And is it a fit? Forget the word balance. <laughs> I, I agree with that. Totally. Well, Kathy, thank you so much. And I, I love your thought on living in possibility. Um, you're one of the most courageous women I know. Uh, so I want to just thank you for this time together. And with that, uh, I just wish you the best. Thanks, Thanks so much, so. Kathy. Thanks for uh-huh. having me. Thank you so much.